All right, COVID-19, vaccines, freedom, government control. I want to just address one part of this, the fear factor. It's a tough one to tackle, but I want to do it once and for all, and I want to do it all at once. Uh, whether it is the COVID-19 outbreaks, whether it is the lockdowns, the vaccines, the mandatory vaccines, vaccine passports, personal liberties and freedoms, intensive care, ventilators, Delta strains, all that stuff, what are we to make of it all? The question makes a lot of people anxious, and that's why I want to go there. It's also a question that creates an enormous amount of division. That's also why I want to go there. Fear and division, those are the themes I want to tackle. And I understand why that is the case. I feel the tension myself because I think we know for sure that the world will not be the same after all of this, and the changes inflicted on the globe over all of this will be enormous. It will change economics, it will change the way governments govern, it will change our attitude to health and staying safe, it will change global politics, it will change the China issue, and so on and so forth, and many of these changes could be bad. Western governments could be more authoritarian and more controlling than ever. Economic recovery could be generations away if at all, I'm talking about the major systemic issues like the crippling debt we're getting into, the intergenerational report says it could be 40 years plus before any of that's dealt with, or, or indeed the way the government is keeping the economy roaring with just stimulus, which we know can't last forever. Uh, you might get vaccinated when you didn't want to. You, a lot more people could die with or of COVID-19. The long-term vaccine trials, when finished, could bring to light unexpected problems. These are possibilities, and there are so many more. I could go through pages of them. They're the sorts of things that people are thinking about, and it's sending us all a little bit nuts. But here's the point I want to make. The world may well be gripped in the fear of all of this, but whatever your views, it is important that you are not. Many are fearful about threats posed by the virus itself. They watch it closely, they think about it constantly, and they hope against hope that we can beat it. Many, however, are fearful about the government. They're deeply alarmed by the loss of freedoms, the emergency powers, the uh, draconian police enforcement, heavy-handedness, and so on. There are those that are fearful of the vaccine, compulsory vaccinations, this sort of thing. Well, remember something that you know, I think, that the number one command in scripture is fear not. The command is almost always given in the face of a great unknown in the face of a set of circumstances or a task which will have an unknown result, God says, fear not. Because fear about tomorrow is the opposite of faith. Faith drives out fear because faith looks not at our circumstances, not at the things we cannot control, but it looks to God who does control and who knows our circumstances. Typically, in fact, the command not to fear is followed by a statement to the effect that I am with you, or I will go with you, or I will be with you. That is a statement from God. Fear not, for I will be with you. Very, very common phrase. That's a big part, you know, of the metaphor of Peter walking on water. He looks away from Christ to the circumstances around him, and he sinks. And the words of Jesus are very significant. He says, you of little faith, why did you fear? See the contrast? The fear of the surrounding circumstances, the fear of the unknown and the threat versus the faith that looks to God who says, fear not, I'm with you, the faith who looks to Christ. If you know Christ, you know the God of the universe, he truly is in control, you have nothing to fear. Many of those around you, however, have everything to fear because they are left to themselves and they have no confidence in a changing and uncertain world. And it is most interesting to me that in Revelation, when you've got a terrible picture of being, people being thrown into eternal judgment, the first category of people are the fearful, the fearful. In other words, the faithless. It was Jesus himself who said, do not worry 
about tomorrow. Do not be anxious about your life. Why? Well, he says your heavenly Father knows what you need. And he says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Now, this is not a call to foolishness. It's not a call to recklessness. It's not a call to fail to think about the future at all. But it is the difference between legitimate forethought and paralyzing worry. It is the difference between considering the future and being controlled by the future. Many a person is currently controlled by their fears in the future. Their mindset, their attitude, the whole lot, it's controlled by fears, and that is wrong. You might ask, well, how on earth can I stop? Well, it's not necessarily a simple process. It takes perhaps a lifetime of effort. But here's one great tip that the Apostle Paul gives from, first, from 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says to Timothy, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, in the context, Paul is telling Timothy to press on with his calling despite the suffering that it will almost certainly entail. He's telling him to do something which makes his future unknown and worrying, and that is explained if you read the subsequent two verses, verses 8 and 9. Can Timothy deal with fear of the future? If so, how? The first step is this. Stop focusing on yourself. Focus instead on the Spirit of God. Focus on the kind of person that the Spirit of God is who has been given for you. Note, not, do not focus on the kind of person that you are. Don't worry about your inadequacies. Have confidence in his abilities because the Spirit of God gives power, love, and a sound mind. Power because in our own strength, we're weak, and that is why we fear. The forces at work here are seriously beyond us. I don't know where this is going. It is beyond me. It's beyond you. We cannot control what is going to happen. We fear because we are confronted with that. We're confronted with our own weakness. But trust in the Spirit of God because He has the power, even when you don't. He gives us love, power and love, because by ourselves, we are turned in on self and we are self-interested. And when we turn in on ourselves, we fear because we're focusing down here into self. And think of Timothy's context. In his particular place, he may well worry about the consequences of preaching the truth under a Roman Empire. He might ask, what about me? He might think of himself. But of course, love turns our concern towards others. Instead of himself, well, he says, well, I will do it because what about them? What about them? It's not self-interested, it's others interested. So don't spare thoughts so much for yourself because that creates fear. Concern yourself instead with the love of God and the love of others. That is why we've been given a spirit of love. And finally, and this one's quite important, a sound mind because fear makes us panic and lose our minds. And a lot of that is happening at the moment. I remember listening to an interview by a World War II veteran or with a World War II veteran, and it was, it was about storming the beach at Normandy on D-Day. And the interviewer asked, weren't you scared? And he said, well, of course, everyone is scared. It's just that some people, when they're scared, they can still think. And I was fortunate that I could still think, even though I was afraid. And here is a spirit that is promised to give us a sound mind, even when we face fearful things. And we lack faith sometimes in not facing the fearful things, you know. But he said to us, no, there is a sound mind if we stop focusing on ourselves and focus on him. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, even when you're persecuted, it will be given to you what to say in those moments. So here's the question. How will you navigate the decisions that are to come in this brave new world? 
Well, don't do it through fear. That's wrong. The Spirit of God has given you the sound mind that you need. He gave it to Daniel. The decision that Daniel made was stored up. He followed through with it. He kept his cool. God will do the same for us. Whoever asks for wisdom will receive it, says James. So stop being afraid. I want to say to people who are Christians, shake yourself up and tell yourself that you're off track if you are fearful. Don't look at yourself. That will always bring fear. But look to God, which is faith, and look at the spirit he has given you. Because that spirit which is given for you is strong, is love, and is wise, giving you a sound mind. You have what you need to face the uncertainty that lies ahead, and so do I. And many people look to me and ask me questions thinking I'm going to solve some of it. I tell you what, this is out of our hands. This is big, it's global, these are forces beyond all of our control. We don't know where it will end. But praise God, we've not been given a spirit of fear. Praise God, he says, fear not. I will be with you. And we can have faith in that. All right. I am going to, what shall I do? I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to do this segment. All right, I'm going to talk about vaccines for a minute. Uh, Not in terms of whether they're effective, not in terms of all that sort of stuff, which is likely to get me cancelled off of social media. But I want to just answer one question because people continually ask. It will upset some, but that's too bad. The reason you watch me is that I talk about everything. And people ask me, should I take the vaccine? Here is why I won't be giving that a yes or no question, because it's not clear. You could take a reason like this. The vaccines have not yet undergone long-term trials. Therefore, they may carry some unknown future risks. Therefore, it's foolish to take it. Or contrast this reason. The vaccine has a demonstrable effect on the lethality of COVID-19, making a person who takes it less likely to get ill or seriously ill or die. One says vaccine bad, the other says vaccine good. And the latter may become more compelling as things return to normal in the hope that they do, because the virus is going to come into this country at some point. There's so many issues to contend with in all of this. Good reasons, bad reasons. Complexities around the role of government, personal liberty, the common good, fetal cell lines, health, side effects, risk. Few have an obvious answer, few of these issues. And when you add up the fors and against, you may be able to make a deduction concerning whether you think the vaccine is a good idea for yourself. But I tell you this, it's, it's pretty much impossible. I don't think it is possible to say, thus saith the Lord on this matter. I certainly can't say that. Ultimately, it cannot be said that getting vaccinated is committing a sin. It cannot be said that getting vaccinated is a holy act. It cannot be said that omitting to get a vaccine is not sin. Or I'm getting a lot of double negatives here, but I think this is right. Omitting to take the vaccine is not a holy act, not a sin. You can't say that. You can't say it. It is not possible to say all Christians must be vaccinated or all Christians must not be vaccinated. All of the competing issues are just too complicated. What are we to do about that? So I believe that such issues are captured by the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, where there's not a clear, thus saith the Lord position on an issue. They are issues of individual conscience. Listen to this, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak only eats vegetables. And this was a bigger issue in the, um, uh, in the early church. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
One person values one day over another. Another values every day the same. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eat in honour of the Lord. Since he, he, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So then each one will give an account of himself to God. In other words, we are accountable to God with our conscience in such matters. If you believe you should take it for the common good and that it's an important thing to do, then take it. If you believe you should not take it for the common good and that it's important not to take it, then don't take it. And leave people alone once they've made their decision. Fine, have an argument, give your point of view, but don't make this into something highly divisive and destructive. And take responsibility for your own decision once you've made it. It's a matter of conscience. And sadly, that has not stopped people from making it a matter of self-righteousness. Or I'm also concerned through stories that I'm hearing that, hearing that it's becoming a cause of divisions between people, especially divisions between Christians, unnecessarily. It is not a clear-cut matter of righteousness or sin. It should never have that effect. We can make our case to each other without falling into schisms over it. That's not to say don't put your point of view. It is to say don't let it cause you to ostracize yourself from other Christians and other people for bad reasons. Bullseye. All right, this is a experimental thing. I might do a lot more of this. I have lots of topics that I would like to do in this little uh, bites called these little segments called truth bites, and they're two minutes or less on a thorny issue. Uh, and so the first one I would like to answer is who am I? Identity. What is my identity in less than two minutes? Well, the answer to the question who am I is actually no. In other words, you're asking the wrong question. And let me explain why. It was Jesus who said that which comes out of the heart of a man is what defiles a man. In other words, he's pointing out the fact that we have a sinful nature. So if you look inside yourself to find out who you are, then you're going to come up with bad answers. In fact, you're going to keep on corrupting yourself and getting worse because that which is within you that comes out of your heart is going to defile you, the lusts and the passions of the flesh. That is why this culture of self-love is literally the most toxic thing ever, and that is what is very much in their cultural consciousness at the moment. Because people were never supposed to look inside of themselves to define themselves. They were only ever supposed to be defined by looking to God, because they were made to bear His image. The reason we struggle with that today is because something called the fall happened. The human race fell in sin. Now, we don't come into the world imaging God so well as a result of that. We have a sinful nature, which Scripture calls the image of Adam, which passed to all people because all sin. And that is also why people seem, on the one hand, so capable and civilised and good, and so messed up and hopeless and evil all at the same time, because they were made great, but they fell. So again, look inside yourself. That is not a good way to go to answer the who am I question. The human condition is quite hopeless. The human condition is full of corruption. But there's hope. The New Testament calls Jesus the image of God. He is the perfect restoration of the holiness, the righteousness, the relationship of God that we to God that we lost in the fall and that we need to recover today. So when you hear that phrase, image of God, you must once and for all stop thinking just about yourself as if that's all you. No, think about Jesus. He is much better at being the image of God than you are. And you are called to be like him. Not to look inside yourself to find out who you are, but to look outside of yourself, lift your eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to know Him, to be like Him. And to do that, you're going to need a Bible and the discipline to actually pick it up and to read it. And you also need to stop asking the question, who am I? Instead, you need to ask, who is God? 
And if you answer that question correctly through Jesus Christ, the rest will fall into place. That is the meaning of life. His identity is the one that matters. Also in under two minutes, another truth bit, Christian and gay. You know, there's only one place for sexual activity and desire in any human's life, and it's called marriage. And God created it, and he made it one man and one woman for life. Genesis 2, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Confirmed by Jesus and the apostles. Note, it's heterosexual, man and woman. Note, it's exclusive, only one man for one woman, and that's it. Yes, lots of people want all kinds of other options. People let their minds entertain everything else. Men desire lots of women, some women desire lots of men, or maybe just one other than their spouse. Or maybe a person entertains same-sex desire, or bisexual desire, or polyamorous desire, or some other desire of which there are still many remaining options that I haven't addressed. Human feelings and lusts literally know no limits. We even invent new ones from time to time. But how you feel, or what your imagination can dream up, just isn't the point. Yes, the full spectrum of human passions and lusts is endless, but God's command is specific. And everything that falls outside of it is sin, and we are warned that it is profoundly destructive both personally and spiritually to a life that indulges it. Get married, in other words, to someone of the opposite sex who is a good egg, make it work, don't stray either in your mind or in your actions. And if, for those of you who have acted on lusts which are outside of God's specific command, let me say this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all things have become new. In other words, your sins are forgiven in Christ and the Holy Spirit will renew and change you. Maybe slowly, maybe quickly, but he will. As you put to death, to use biblical language, the deeds of the flesh and live according to the Spirit, your desires, whatever they were or could be, they will change. They will conform more closely to the image that God has for them. We come up with a lot of categories as humans. There really are only two that matter, God's way or man's way. And the way of God is the way of blessing, and he does empower us to follow it. I'm Martin Isles, and that was the truth of it.